Today we are uh, starting a series on Ephesians and uh, I just wanted to bring a word of background before we get into the nitty gritty. Um, So this is Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus which was written about 60 AD, something along those lines, when Paul was actually a prisoner in Rome. That's when he wrote this, um, and the Ephesian church itself had been established six or seven years before, probably about AD 53, um, when he was on his homeward journey to Jerusalem, uh, and uh, subsequently he'd been back to visit the Christians there the following year when he was on his third missionary journey. Now, whether or not he stayed longer than he'd, he'd planned, I'm not quite sure, but he'd actually remained with them for three years. So he knew the church in Ephesus really quite well, and he'd come to love them. And uh, we learn more about uh, that in Acts chapter 19, uh, if you want to go and read that. But anyway, um, back to Paul in Rome. Um, he had quite a number of visitors whilst he was in prison from some of the churches that he'd set up. And uh, the representative from the Ephesus church was uh, a chap called Tychicus. And uh, he was the chap that brought the letter that Paul had written back to the church in Ephesus for everyone to benefit from. And unlike Paul's letters to some of the other churches, um, particularly the one in Corinth, this letter wasn't trying to deal with issues of heresy or ungodly behaviour. And I promised Paul to not do any heresy today. (laughs) You you encouraged me not to, so I promise I won't. Um, This wasn't about that. This was about encouragement. Paul was trying to encourage the church, remember a church that he knew well, a church that he loved, challenging the believers to live in unity as the body of Christ on earth. And right at the very start of this letter, um, well, I think that that in itself must have been uh, a real encouragement to the Christians there because he describes them as, in the very first verse, as the faithful in Christ, is what he says, the faithful in Christ. And just that opening phrase made me stop and consider what it would take for us as Christians to be known as the faithful in Christ. Even in the fellowship here, what does it mean to be known as the faithful in Christ in five head. Well, I'd suggest that there are two aspects to this. And firstly, we'd need to be living in accordance with God's will and purpose for our lives. Loving him with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, as we are encouraged to do. As well, of course, as loving our neighbours, those uh, in our community around about us witnessing to our Christian faith and to the truth that the gospel declares. So that's the basis of it. But the second part is 
doing that consistently and intentionally so that what we say with our lips is the same as what we declare with our lives. When I was um, a bank manager, which is quite a long time ago now, I, I gave that up about 15 years ago. But when I started, and I was very junior in the office, the first job in the morning when all the checks came in through the London clearing was to look at all the house checks and make sure that the words said what the figures were on the check. And if they were different, you had to bounce the check and you write at the top of the check in red letters, words and figures differ. Have you ever had a check bounced with words and figures different? It's because the check is not valid because the two things don't say the same. And I think it's like that in the Christian life. What we say, what we declare with our lips, must be outworked in the way that we live our lives. It's about authenticity. Anyway, that's just an aside. That wasn't really what I wanted to talk about. Um, And we're not going to really dwell on that, but it does open up that immediate challenge, doesn't it, for us about how serious we are in our desire to honour Jesus in both our individual lives and our corporate life together as a church. Would people say of us that we are the faithful in Christ, individually and corporately? Let's encourage and support one another to that end, because that's part of what it means, isn't it, to be brothers and sisters in Christ, supporting and encouraging one another. So to the meat of uh, this part, first part of the chapter then, um, now I'm going to be honest here and say when Judy contacted me and asked me if I would preach this morning, uh, she didn't tell me what the passage was going to be, and she emailed that to me later. Uh, And uh, I have to say, when she did, my heart sank. Predestination. What a great topic to preach on. Not. (laughs) So, much ink, I think, has been spilled by many theologians over many centuries on that topic, and uh, I assure you that I'm not going to Uh, solve that particular issue today, uh, but I do want to put it into some sort of context. Because Paul is clearly writing to his friends and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with, as we've said, a message of encouragement, recognising that God has bestowed upon them what he describes as every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the key point here, I think, is to recognise where the blessing comes from. Because it, it it, it isn't earned, we don't deserve it, it's not paid to us as a right like wages would be. It's God's mercy and grace which um which gives us that blessing in Christ. It's received by those who have faith, who have trusted Jesus for salvation and chosen to live their lives in a way which honours him, submitted to his will 
and committed to his way, is the phrase I've written down. Submitted to his will and committed to his way. Authenticity in our walk with Jesus. So let's think first of all about what those spiritual blessings are. Because in Christ we both choose salvation and are chosen for salvation, is what the passage says. And uh, we will think a little bit more about that predestination question in a moment. But let's ask first of all, what are these blessings Are they not first and foremost the benefit of knowing God, both in this life and for eternity? Verse 7 spells this out. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Let's just pause there for a second because... If ever you're unsure about the value of your spiritual blessing, then remind yourself of God's grace. Someone helpfully described it to me once, this concept of grace, by comparing it with justice and mercy, which are two other words that we associate with God. So if you think of it in judicial terms... You'd say that justice is getting what you deserve. Yeah, justice is getting what you deserve. So mercy, then, is not getting what you deserve. But I'd suggest that grace trumps them both, or you might say fulfills them both, because grace is getting what you don't deserve getting what you don't deserve. Imagine a courtroom scene where God is the judge and he's in the judgment seat and you, as the sinner, are in the dock, condemned for what you have done wrong, standing before the judge, waiting to receive the only sentence that he can give, the sentence that justice demands, getting what you deserve. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, so there is only one sentence. But God, having pronounced that sentence from the judgment seat, then comes down from the, dock, from the, from the judge's seat and he comes into the dock and he says, I will take your place and you are free to go. Mercy is shown Because we're then not getting what we deserve. Justice is served through the sacrificial death of Jesus, God's own son. Jesus was God. God himself took the punishment that was due to us. But in fact, we are the ones who are free We are therefore his adopted children, freely forgiven at immeasurable cost. The ultimate, you might say, in spiritual blessing. 
Beyond that, in our state of grace, we are gifted and equipped by the Holy Spirit to be all that God would want us to be, that we might please and honour him, that we might be empowered to be his witnesses and use our gifting for the building up of the church. And Paul writes several chapters about that uh, when he uh, is writing his letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, If you want to check that out, Look at verses, uh, chapters 12 and 14 in 1 Corinthians. And uh, don't miss out chapter 13 either. These blessings are, it says in verse 3, in the heavenly realms. So we can be sure that they are eternal and not temporal. God is faithful. So let's get down to the nitty gritty here because um, in verse 4... Paul talks about God choosing us, and this reminds us that our salvation is not dependent on us, but entirely dependent on him. We didn't influence God's decision to save us. We are saved in accordance with his plan, and it's he alone that has made this possible. And as such... We can't take any credit for our eternal relationship with God. And consequently, there's no place for pride at all. It's God's work of grace. And we who have faith in Jesus are the ones who are the beneficiaries of that grace. Because of Jesus' death on Culver's cross, we are acceptable to God our Heavenly Father, albeit completely undeservedly, holy and blameless in his sight. And all we can do, as Paul encourages us at the beginning of that verse 3, is to give thanks to God. Praise be to him, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And then verse 5 goes on to explain that we are predestined to be adopted as sons into the family of God because of Jesus and through faith in him. Now, predestined means marked out beforehand. And I suppose this is another way of saying that salvation is God's work, not ours. By faith, we have become adopted children. Now, in Roman law... Adopted children had the same rights and privileges as biological children, even if they had been slaves beforehand. So Paul uses this phrase to make clear how strong that relationship is for everyone who has faith in him. And this theme is picked up in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, where Paul makes clear that if we have become children of God, then we are heirs along with Jesus, the Son, heirs of God's glory, which is our spiritual blessing in Christ. So all of that is true, and we've concluded here that uh, we're in no position to be smug about our Um, eternal relationship with God because 
It's his work and not ours that's made all of that possible. But I wonder if you're sat there thinking that I have sidestepped the elephant in the room. Because there are those who say that if God chose us and we are predestined to be adopted into his family, then logic suggests that others have not been chosen and that they must therefore have been chosen for destruction and an eternity without the spiritual blessings that we who have faith have been promised. And herein, of course, lies the conundrum. And I'm not for a moment wanting to say that I have all the answers here. Um, And to some extent, I think it's true to say that the question of predestination will always be something of a mystery. But, you know, there are things that we know about God from what Scripture tells us and declares to us. And I think it's important we hold on to these things because we know that God is good, don't we? And we know that he is just. We know that he is merciful. We know that he is faithful. And we know that it is not his will that anyone should be lost. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, um, Timothy in his writing is talking about living in peace and contentment. And he says this, this is good and pleases God our saviour who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then there's that famous verse in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 3, and that verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. We can be sure that God's love is for everyone, and he, deser- he desires that everyone should respond to his love. You only have to look at uh, all of Jesus' teaching on searching for the lost to know that he desires that all should come to a saving faith. But he won't force himself into our lives, will he? He gives us free choice, free will. He stands at the door and knocks. And we are the ones who must take positive steps to open the door and invite him in if we are to share those spiritual blessings that come by faith. And if we do that, then the Bible is clear because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what it says in in Acts. So then what is meant by predestination in this context? And is it that we should just conveniently gloss over and move on from? Well, it crossed my mind in thinking about this that um, we don't seem to have a problem with the Jews being God's chosen people um, from the Old Testament. We're happy to accept that the Jewish nation was special to him and um, that they'd been set aside or chosen to fulfil his purposes. 
they were beneficiaries under the old covenant, the law of Moses. But that wasn't the whole story, was it? So in one sense, God in his sovereignty has every right to choose his followers, just as Jesus chose the people who would be his disciples during his earthly ministry. But I think, again, there's a bigger picture here which uh, might just help us with this question of whether God discriminates against people who, it might be said, are not chosen. And the answer, I think, is a resounding no. Just... um, Have a look with me, if you would like to, um, at a passage in Romans chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 28 to 30. Romans chapter 8, those couple of verses from verse 28. It says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Before predestination comes God's foreknowledge. I think that's really important to just grasp that. Before predestination comes God's foreknowledge of who will respond in faith. So this scripture helps us to understand that God calls the people who love him to be part of his kingdom purposes. And those who accept this invitation are therefore beneficiaries under the new covenant and are therefore God's chosen people. Not by law, which was the old covenant, but by grace, which is the new. So whilst everyone is free to respond to God's love in Jesus and God wants everyone to make that positive response, We know and God knows that not everyone will. And because God is God and he knows who will respond, that foreknowledge, then we can trust God and know that that predestination is with an understanding in advance of who will respond. Remember, Jesus is outside Time. He's not bound by the constraints of time that we have to live with. Do you remember um, Jesus once used those words um, that I am, he he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And we were talking in, in, or singing in that song, the great I am. Do you remember that? I am. Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is outside time. Time, in that sense, is an irrelevance to God. It's not a difficult step now, perhaps, to conclude that God knew in in advance those who would respond to his offer of love and forgiveness in Jesus. 
and those he foreknew, he therefore chose or predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, adopted as heirs with him and destined for glory, beneficiaries of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, undeserved grace. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've thought about the blessing of redemption and forgiveness, the blessing of grace and the value of an eternal relationship with God through faith in Jesus. We've recognised that God has also blessed us with spiritual gifts which enable us to bring blessing to others and to build up the body of the church. And all this is imparted from the heavenly realm at God's behest and because of his amazing love. Not through any deserving of our own, but by grace. But there is yet more. And verse 9 tells us that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. To be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment is what it says. In other words, God's amazing plan of salvation is knowledge that has been shared with those who are part of his family. Heirs with Jesus, his adopted sons and daughters, And if you think about it, what an amazing privilege that is. But I'd suggest it's more than a privilege. It's also an incredible responsibility. We have been entrusted with the precious truth of God's love. And we are commissioned to make this good news known to all mankind Now, this isn't the great request. It's the great commission. It's a command to go and make disciples. And our passage goes on to explain that we are to be available for kingdom purposes. Or as verse 11 puts it, the purposes of his will. And why is this? Well, the answer to that is in verse 12. It's for the praise of his glory. We are included in Christ, verse 13, which means that we are not only beneficiaries of salvation, but we are bearers of the good news of salvation as well. With the benefit goes the responsibility. And if you think that's a daunting prospect to be part of God's plan, then fear not. Because we aren't called to to do this work on our own. Verses 13 and 14 remind us that when we believed and came to faith, we were marked by the seal of the Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us, gives us the gifts that we need for every believer to make known that good news of salvation, that those spiritual gifts are available to all 
who will believe. The same spirit acts as guarantor of our heavenly inheritance so that we need never doubt that we belong to Christ and that he belongs to us. Can you think of a more amazing spiritual blessing than that? So I want to encourage you, friends, to live in the reality of God's blessing. Let's be submitted to his will and committed to his way. Let's share the truth of salvation with all who will listen. And let's honour Jesus in everything to his praise and glory. Amen.